Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Fiona Pathiraja, the Health Tech VC. On this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with ambitious startups, outstanding investors, and visionary leaders in health tech. This week's guest is Dr. Ben Evans, Managing Partner at InHealth Ventures. InHealth Ventures is an early stage health tech fund investing at Seed and Series A, both in the US and in Europe. Ben discusses his interesting career from medicine to venture capital via management consulting at McKinsey, a stint at a startup, and being an operations manager in the NHS. He also touches on what makes a successful founding team, go-to-market strategies in healthcare, and the differences in early-stage innovation between the US and UK health systems. We also discuss how small health tech startups can survive in an age where the big internet giants are increasingly moving into health tech. Ben, welcome to the Health Tech VC podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So for some of the people listening, I'm sure only very few will know that you and I have actually have a long history together because we were in the same year at medical school at UCL, where we graduated in 2006. We do. Many good memories. It feels like a long time ago now. But yes, there were some good times. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your takeaway from your time at UCL and whether your 18-year-old self would ever have imagined that you're doing what you're doing today. Sure, of course. Yeah, probably in a word, no. I was probably quite a young 18-year-old and I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do ultimately. I guess that's true of a lot of people, particularly in the UK, where you're having to make decisions about what degree you want to do early on. It was a great experience being a medic. I have to say I probably preferred the theory less and the practice more. And so I particularly enjoyed my time as we got into the clinical side of, of medical school. And, and actually it was only really until I became a house officer that, that I really fully began to enjoy it and understand the, the privilege of being a doctor and understand the, the responsibility and so on. But it was a really interesting time being in London at that time, a huge year, as you'll remember, and, and very formative years. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit more about your transition from frontline medicine to venture capital, because I know you've got this incredibly varied career that you've done so many different aspects of. Yeah, I mean, so I practiced for about four years. I was going down the, the surgical route, so I did core surgical training, left at CT2. As I progressed from the most junior level, it became clearer to me that I really enjoyed the interaction with patients and interaction with colleagues on the wards and so on. And I was probably going to enjoy it less as I became more senior and you lost some of that component of being a doctor and increasingly focus on a particular area and doing a smaller set of things. Alongside that, I'd always had an interest in other aspects of life, particularly around around business. I'd read a lot about it and you know spoken to people about it over the years. At that point, back in, this is 2009-10, I'm sure you remember we had something called Modernising Medical Careers, which was mm-hmm. a spanner into the works of how one progressed from a junior doctor to getting a number and, and going into to training. It was just clearly a bit of a lottery. I was keen to to focus on orthopedics and, and it wasn't clear that it was a, a real logic to, to how one would progress. And ultimately, I, well, I'm not quite sure if I really want to do this anyway for the next kind of 20, 30 years of my life. And so I made the decision just to, to try something different. At that point, it was certainly not with uh, a clarity in mind that you know I wanted to go on and do you know, venture capital or, or, or indeed wanted to continue to practice outside of medicine and do other things. It was more a case of just exploring what was beyond clinical practice. And I, that's probably a theme throughout my, my career is I, I tended just to 
to be relatively quick in making decisions and moving without necessarily thinking what was on the other side and and to some extent just being willing to to particularly at a younger age focus on developing a, a range of experiences rather than thinking about a particular path and i left back in 2010 and i went into management consulting so i worked at management consulting firm mckinsey for just under four years i worked first of all in the london office and then i went over to the us for a couple of years and worked in boston and new york largely worked in, in healthcare that whole time and particularly in the us just fell in love with the country was first exposed to to early stage innovation within healthcare. There's a ton of inequities within the US healthcare, obviously, but there is a willingness to try different models of care. And and I just love that. And particularly mm-hmm. in Boston, I, I got to meet a lot of startup founders. This would have been 2012, met some investors as well, regular dinners and, and you know, meetups and so on. And, and it was just clear to me that this was an area that I wanted to focus on over the longer term. While I was at McKinsey, I was part of a, a spin-out uh, called Objective Health that was uh, focusing on delivering health analytics to provider organizations over there. I kind of cut my teeth leading a product and selling it to customers. <laughs> and that was a that was a, a really exciting experience. The affordable care app was being rolled out. Everything was changing. And I just learned a ton there. Really, you know, it also solidified my, my view that data was going to be increasingly comp- important as a way to improve healthcare from a point of view. Of, of cost, patient outcomes, access. At that point, made a call to come back to the UK and, and actually come back to the NHS. And I was a manager of the NHS at St George's, heading up clinical transformation. What a sort of big move from not only geography but also sort of the, the more uh, frenetic management consulting life to then being you know within the NHS as a clinical manager. It must have been a culture shock to you. It was really interesting. As someone told me as I was as I was starting it that it would be. This is starting management in the NHS and it would be the hardest thing I ever did. And I thought, how could that be possible? I've been a doctor, been a management consultant, traveling all over the US. And lo and behold, it, it was. And it gave me a level of insight around how tough it is to be a manager in the NHS. A group of people that often get bashed. Management is essentially seen as something that is superfluous and is creating complexity and, and not necessarily additive to the NHS. And, and that can be the case, 100%. But the people that I met there, the passion they had, the hours they put in were insane. They were management consulting level. You know, people were putting 15, 16 hours a day and, and they weren't getting paid significant salaries in the way that a lot of clinicians were at a senior level. And yeah, it was really tough. You realise how, how hard it is to operate in an NHS hospital, particularly in London, how the demands of the day-to-day, really what your focus is. There's zero ability to think beyond the next week or month you have planning processes at the beginning of the year and you think about how you commission care and you think about how you potentially will look to identify technologies that you want to implement Mm. but so much of it was drawn and focused on how do we get through the next day because we've got 99 percent occupancy across the hospital and we've got 10 15 patients waiting in a and e to get admitted we can't get anyone out it was an incredible experience i learned a huge amount and and it was actually interesting on the tech side being a customer in that situation and having health tech companies at that point pitching that was a really valuable experience as well and then what made you move from st george's as a clinical manager into venture capital uh there are a range of reasons both related to the the job but also how i saw things over the longer term and i think what became clear to me is i as i said that's a huge amount while at st george's over the preceding years management consulting and objective health but I, i kept being drawn back to this focus on how you can really innovate bottom up uh, and deliver a substantive change on that basis. In my experience at Object of Health, subsequently dabbled with 
startups. I was very much looking at opportunities both to start something myself, join something early stage, or equally to look to how I could work with startups at scale. And that route on the venture side had been something I've been interested for a long time and, and felt like it could be a good fit and probably play to my strengths in many ways. I'm someone who likes to have a, a level of variety. I felt particularly you know, based on my magic consulting experience, there's an advisory aspect to venture, which was something I enjoyed when I was a consultant. I think I felt like a parlay into VC. Talking about in-health ventures, as a radiologist, I'm very familiar with in-health, which is obviously a very large company doing lots of diagnostic scans in the private sector in the UK. But can you tell us about in-health ventures and how it's related to in-health and sort of the relationship between the two? In-health ventures... I was brought in to, to launch it in 2016. It's, a, it's an early stage fund. We, we invest typically at seed stage and series A. We tend to invest in companies that are, are leveraging data to try and improve access outcomes, improve costs within healthcare. Portfolio split 50-50 between US and Europe. Early on, there was very much a focus around the fund being more of a classic strategic corporate entity. Where we are now is we're more of an independent institutional style model of fund. But our links within health mean that we can help portfolio companies around a range of areas based on in-health experience. So that could be around go-to-market planning. It could be around structured joint work together. It can be around product development and R&D. What we like to say is we're very much a, a fund that that is able to bring the benefits of a strategic corporate type entity, but without some of the, the challenges that you often see around bureaucracy and control elements and so on. Specifically within health, in health is a large part of its business is, is providing services to the NHS. And at the core of what we're doing in in-health ventures, ultimately is trying to, our mission is to try and help foster technologies and businesses that are going to benefit the NHS, whether that's investing in the US or it's investing here in Europe. And and, and in-health can enable us to do that. In-health is relationships with hospitals, with CCGs and so on. It is, is able to open doors for, for portfolio companies that may otherwise be more challenging to access. You mentioned the NHS is this dominant part of healthcare in the UK. And it's often the unsaid thing in venture capital that actually it is very difficult for startups to sell into the NHS. How do you think that startups should approach this? Yes, it is. It is an ongoing challenge, although I think it's probably overdone it in that it's not that different to other health systems. Mm. Um, it's incredibly challenging in the US to sell into healthcare. I think it's it's more of a healthcare thing than necessarily a, a thing that's specific to any one health system. I think probably what the US does have is, is a large component of SMB type businesses, doctors, practices, clinics that may be you know, local, regional, that tend to have shorter sales cycles and be more focused on, on the, the bottom line as it were, versus the, the enterprise type larger systems in the US. So what you've seen over the, certainly in the course of my four and a bit years doing this, is, is an increasing, A, realisation of, of the importance of digital technologies and the role they'll play in healthcare going forward. And obviously that's been accelerated over the last nine, 10 months. But B, an increasing sophistication on the, the NHS side. So people in management who have a particular focus on engaging with these types of companies, which I think is something that will inevitably prove positive for, for early stage companies. 
and see a significant amount of support from the centre, so from the Department of Health, from NHSE, both from the point of view of grants, the point of view of HSNs and so on. So creating a network that allows early stage companies to learn how best to think about how they approach NHS organisations, in some cases, grants and and so on to, to help support them in that. Finally, there is a, I think, air cover on that basis for hospitals and CCGs and other organizations within the NHS to look to take more risks. Going back to the US experience where there was that willingness to try different models, I think that's shifting now. And so I think there is a a willingness to engage with startups uh, in a way that there might not have been even a few years ago. I was wondering what your experience is of how the US health tech market at this early seed series A stage differs from the UK and Europe. It's really a matter of the US being a more mature market when it comes to digital health. You'd probably say it's probably five to maybe eight years ahead of the UK and Europe. What that means is there is just a much more established ecosystem for startups to develop in. On the funding side, there are a large number of US healthcare focused funds. On the angel side, you have large quantum of of successful healthcare founders who have exited and are now putting their money to work in investing in new founders. You come back to that point around sophistication in a way, for want of a better word, you have a set of customers who who just have a greater level of experience around how they engage with digital technologies. I think the distinction within the US is a lot of the medics have a level of business training as well that a lot of them will do MD, MBAs. Medicine was always a, a slightly more entrepreneurial approach in the US anyway. They weren't employed by hospitals typically in the US mm-hmm. until recently. So doctors were setting up their own practices. You have a, a typical founder and founding team that probably has a bit more experience on the commercial side, uh, a bit more experience on how they think about developing a product and so on. So that's probably the, the reality. But, but I think what's exciting is that you've seen a massive acceleration in Europe and the UK over the last few years. I, I certainly go back um, to when I started four years ago and compare it to now and just you know, the number of companies being started, the resources those companies can access, the number of new funds, even the last year that have started up, like, you obviously, and Chris Degale and your team and others, it's just really exciting. There is a, a great trajectory that, that Europe is on. Yeah, and I, I think that Europe is a very exciting place to be at the moment. Going back to your point about the US, it made me think about one of the reflections I had is that US doctors even, I find are much better at selling themselves and creating a narrative around what they're doing than we are in the UK. Is that something you've come across too? I think that's right. I don't, I don't think that's just doctors. I think it's just Americans in general. Yeah. So going back to university, my cousin did a master's over in the US recently. And mm. a big component for how they're marked is how interactive they are in classes. Yeah. It's a really significant component. And, and there is a real focus on, on how you develop, even at school, your ability to articulate and debate and, and so on. And so I think by the time you get to, when you're starting a company, uh, they are just able to sell themselves in a way that it, it doesn't come naturally, certainly to <laughs> yes. British people. I, I think that's probably it. I think there is just a level of sophistication on, on that front that's really interesting. But yeah, I, I completely agree. It's consistent. In many ways, one has to be careful, I find, because it, it is easy to be to focus on the delivery and maybe miss things that, that you might otherwise see if that delivery wasn't as compelling as it is. 
So talking about that, about delivery, what are you looking for in a great startup and a great founding team? First of all, the founding team, I think ultimately, and this is the ideal, you want a couple of founders, one who has a strong experience of the problem they're solving, whether it's clinical, non-clinical, and it has a, a kind of a level of commercial now, and then a, a technical co-founder who is able to build fast and, and can help the business scale quickly and iterate. And, and you want them really to have an ability to execute in the short term and, and an, even at an early stage, an ability to demonstrate how they've done that, but also a longer term vision that keeps them targeted and centered around what they're doing in spite of the inevitable ups and downs that will uh, happen on, on the journey to, to building a healthcare business. And those are the kind of core components. Alongside that, it's obviously it's you know, a, a strong level of integrity, a real focus on mission, fundamentally understanding what the, the problem they're trying to solve and why they are. And, and the ability to hire and raise money. And, and those people are, are few and far between. It's, it's quite a lot of no, stuff. No, Ultimately, that's why it's hard. And I think it is the easy part. We've been lucky enough to have, have invested in the fund in a few founders who are you know, repeat founders and therefore kind of know how to you know, avoid the, the pitfalls and, and, and over-index on the success factors. But I think first-time founders, inevitably, there's a huge amount you learn and you're going to have gaps in, in that type of profile. And from an investment point of view, the key part is to be effective how you identify those nuggets of gold and, and accept that there are other areas where you'll have to help the founder, you'll have to identify people that can help the founder and founding team. And that's part of the, the fun and the journey. But fundamentally, I'm very clear that as an investor, particularly in early stage companies, there's a huge amount of luck involved and you know, on the part of the investor. And therefore, this is about trying to back people who are, you know, very high potential, accepting that the product offering solution will change as time goes on, accepting that the market may well change, backing the people and really being helpful to them, supporting them where you can and getting out of the way otherwise and letting these people you know, work their magic and, and do their thing. Yeah, I think it's important, isn't it, to remember that the spotlight's on the founder and not on the investment team. Um, talking about Spotlight, can you share a couple of companies from your portfolio that would be interesting sort of for our listeners to hear about? Sure. I'll mention Chiron Medical Technologies to, to begin with, which is a, a London-based company that may well be familiar to, to your listeners. So this is a, a company that's focusing on providing essentially AI-based reporting for breast scans for mammography. I mentioned them because they are a great example of a company that was probably at the earlier side of this AI hype boom that we've seen in, in healthcare over the last few years came out of EF and have, have consistently executed and developed an incredibly strong product as a result of it. Have naturally, as, as all companies in this space have done, have gone through a process where they've they've had to work out how best to engage the customer and, and the radiologist, who as you all know is, you know, different and conflicting views around the use of, of digital technologies and, and automation around different components of, of the pathway when it comes to diagnostics. And I think what's exciting is you've seen a company that has learned a huge amount, that's progressed a huge way. And while you know, other companies in the space have, have fallen away, is in a great position right now to address a significant need that we're seeing globally, which is you know, a, a challenge around shortages in radiologists, significant backlogs driven by the pandemic and a clear need 
in the future to think about how we can you know, more effectively diagnose at scale to address some of these challenges. It's been a you know, privilege to work with them over the last few years. I think the future is really exciting for them. So that's Chiron. The other end of, of the, the scale on the non-clinical side, there's Laudio, who is a, a portfolio company based out in Boston. We were the first investors in the company and co-led the, the Series A earlier last year. And and they are focused on something which I'm quite passionate about, which is trying to improve the lives of clinical workforce. They have a platform that focuses on engaging clinical staff, improving communication across different clinical staff types, and particularly improving how managers of clinical staff, whether nurses, physicians, other allied health professionals, can effectively get the best out of, of their teams particularly in, in a lot of cases when these managers won't have a lot of training. You often have this concept, allow you have this concept of being battlefield promoted. When you've done a great job clinically, you become a manager of people, but yeah. you haven't necessarily had a whole lot of experience and, 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 and formal training around that. And secondly, you often have very large spans of control. And so you are, you're dealing with a lot of people in a very busy job and it's really tough to effectively engage and communicate with them which which leads to problems retaining them one of the biggest challenges within healthcare it's up until the pandemic it was the major problem within the nhs is is staff turnover it's the same problem in the us and in, in other health systems and so laudio are, are focused on addressing that focused on addressing burnout within clinical staff particularly now they've really come to the fore and are able to meet the needs of a clinical workforce that are that are suffering after the pandemic and, and and still in the midst of it very much obviously so that's yeah they're a great company they're actually they are deployed within in health as well and, and, and are having great success there i'm excited about the potential impact they can have on the nhs that's really interesting to know and they're also both as you said very different companies very clinical on one side and very non-clinical on the other thank you for sharing that corona has been this asteroid that's hit the earth and really changed the way that we're seeing and doing things in healthcare and and I, I find it's interesting that now everyone's talking about healthcare, whether it's the people in the grocery shop or at the highest levels of government. What has been your view of the pandemic? Are you still investing in the same way? Have you had to change your processes around due diligence? What has been the impact of the pandemic on you and your portfolio companies? From the portfolio point of view, obviously, it was beyond beyond the, the personal, from a business point of view, a very challenging time back in March, April, May. And there was a slew of board meetings at that time with different portfolio companies. And when we all felt like we were looking into the abyss as a, a large portion of our portfolio sells into health systems and in the US and the UK, and, and they were all essentially shutting up shop by all elective work was being stopped and they were focusing 100% on how they delivered against the challenges around coronavirus and that, that was that was a it was just incredible to see how portfolio companies responded to that how a lot of them were able to rapidly adapt to have a positive impact on the response creating pro new products that enabled a, a clinician or an administrator in different situations uh, to more effectively deal with the flood of patients they were having to manage. On the other side of that, there's been a real resurgence in business in the last couple of quarters has, has been phenomenal in a lot of cases for, for a number of the portfolio companies. If you ask them, they'll say that the, the kind of arc of, of healthcare adoption of digital technologies has continued on the same path, but it's just been accelerated by about 
you know, five or 10 years, the vision these CEOs and, and, and co-founders have have remained, remained clear to them throughout. It's really suddenly the market has come towards them. And that's really exciting. They have seen sales cycles go from your typical 18 months to, in some cases, a month or less. They've had enterprise systems in the US just calling them up and asking, you know, can, can we deploy your technology? That's really exciting. I think you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the last four years, both in the US and Europe around, well, there's a lot of money going into these companies, but there's not a whole lot to show for it in terms of exits. And that's the other component is you've seen a number of IPOs, a number of big acquisitions and Teladot Lavongo was probably yeah. the domino that started it all. That's the other aspect. It, you are seeing now, I think, uh, a level of validation of this model. And, and only in the last few weeks, you've had a number of, uh, I think the Economist, CFT, both had a big focus on how digital health is going to be the, the kind of next trillion dollar market that, that's developed. The impact that, that digital technologies can have has always been there. I think we're now starting to see that being delivered on, having a virtual approach to healthcare, having a remote approach to healthcare, looking to change the way in which hospitals work and, and, and deliver in a more disaggregated way is an exciting direction that they're heading in. You have on the, the startup side, people who, as you say, wouldn't have been focused on this previously now saying this is an area uh, we really want to think about getting into and I think particularly on the startup side like CEOs who may previously have seen healthcare as a, a somewhat undynamic um, environment in which we build a business and now seeing the, the real potential that exists there. I, th- I would agree with you you know that Covid or Corona has turbocharged the whole of healthcare and we've seen so much change that we might have that might have taken a decade before really happen across the last year or so moving away from work I wanted to talk about some of your choices you've made in your career because lots of the guests who come on here are, are doctors who've left medicine to go on to this sort of medicine plus career and I always ask them the same question but I think it's really important how did you take the leap out of medicine and when did you feel brave enough to actually say look this thing that I've spent many years slogging over at medical school and as a junior doctor I'm happy to park it and move on it was a decision that I thought about a lot and I spoke to a lot of people you know back in 2010 ish 11 ish it was probably a less common route certainly a few medics were, were leaving but it was still great to speak to people who had done it and to get their perspectives I think I, I did as I said earlier I think just have a general ethos of I'm still relatively young and I believe that and I think this is really important you probably don't recognize it as a doctor but I did learn it in speaking to people is that having a degree as a medic and and having an experience as a doctor is seen as hugely valuable uh, in other industries and obviously on the degree side it it demonstrates a level of intellectual ability and a focus on hard work and so on on the clinical delivery side there's, there's obviously a huge amount you learn in terms of people and how you you interact with them that is something that's hugely valued in many ways it wasn't a hard decision i could i could do this and if it didn't work out then there was obviously the potential to go back to, to medicine but also it would be a phenomenal experience for phenomenal adventure and I, i'd learn a huge amount and that's something i've been focused on throughout my career is just learning new things. Thinking about medicine and and, and the time I put into it, I've never seen that as, as often people asking, you know, do you feel like it was a waste? And I, I really don't. My experience at medical school, my experience as a doctor was just phenomenal. It was being a doctor was a great privilege, as I said earlier. I learned a huge amount I would never have learned in any other job doing that. So that's been hugely valuable for me and what I've done subsequently. And it is something 
that I, I probably, in many ways, I'd love to have been able to have carried it on in some way, shape or form. It's always been my ethos to focus on the good and, and the incredible experience that I, I got through being a clinician and and to think about what can I learn next and how can I continue to develop as an individual in my career. Actually, often the lens that I have as an investor in the health tech space is very informed by my experiences before in healthcare. And I think it probably it, it must be the same for you as well. Obviously, I jumped ship a lot earlier than you, so I'm, I was, I'm sure you have like a wholly different perspective. And I think that's what's great about different experiences within, within in medicine and, and I think different experiences more broadly that investors can bring to the table is ultimately you have a, a, a different set of, of perspectives that, that, that will ideally bring you to a conclusion that's the most effective and successful one. And for anybody who's listening, who's thinking about leaving medicine to move into consulting or into venture capital, do you have any tips that they could take away from this conversation on how they might start that journey? First of all, what I'd say is the grass is, is it's always greener, but it is any new career choice out of medicine is going to have its upsides and its downsides and one of the things i do miss is working in in an office in management consulting or, or, or doing what i do now you, you can often kind of come to the end of the day and think what have i really achieved today whereas as a medic or, or a nurse or anything like that no matter how bad your day is and, and what little you've done you can still look back and think god I've, I've had some really significant tangible impact and and that's not to be underestimated losing that is such a fundamental part of, of being a clinician. The second thing I'd say is, yeah, to my earlier point, you have lots of options and there are lots of employers out there who will be incredibly excited to look at hiring clinicians that, that have a level of experience, regardless of the, the particular area. And I think probably the third thing I'd say is, I guess it's never too late, right? I did it relatively early. I speak to medics who went into to business and other areas, careers, straight out of medical school. Fiona, obviously you've progressed to becoming a consultant and there's a wealth of, of knowledge and impact, particularly around healthcare as, as the business develops and the market develops that, that clinicians can bring to the table. There are lots of people now who have, who have done it and you can just take the time to, to do inter informational interviews and, and get the perspectives of others who have trodden this path already. And be more like our American colleagues and be able to sell ourselves better. Yes, 100%. Yeah, it's tough. I think, as, as you say, there's an ethos, right? I think when it comes to pitching and when it comes to how you communicate in this space, you probably have to push beyond that point of discomfort to where mm. you are really selling and it's how, how the Americans do it. To wrap up, I've just got one final question for you, which is that as investors investing in these very early stage health tech companies, you and I really believe in the power of innovation driven by small companies. And I'm quite struck at the fact that Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, they're all moving into health tech now. So do you see a future where startups still fit into this ecosystem? Will there be space for them to walk alongside these internet giants? Yeah, I think it's really exciting that they're all coming into the space because I just think it, it means there will be, you know, an ongoing level of innovation, ongoing opportunity around acquisitions. I think it's really tough for, you know, a Google or an Amazon or, or, or Facebook to focus. And so my general view is a, a small focused startup will always beat a large business that has a whole load of resources they need to think about and a whole load of 
objectives and so on and a whole lot of people that that, that have different needs and, and and perspectives the startup always has the advantage there and i think as you start to think about how markets develop over the coming years i think you will see an explosion of of new opportunities that, that aren't, aren't clear right now the beauty of healthcare is it's different to other markets other other industries in that you need to think not just about the product you're developing, hugely important are the people aspects, the pathway and workflow aspects within healthcare. You know, as we talked about how you most effectively sell into healthcare, developing an evidence base, for example, those are things that, that startups can really focus on. And I think with the best one in the world, the, the, the big tech companies just won't be able to have the time uh, and focus to do that. I just think there's a huge amount to go after. And I think what I will say is that coming back to that point on, on, on go to market and, and product and so on, as a startup, one has to focus on developing phenomenal products because they aren't common in healthcare. And, and that's something that, that will give you an edge, but also thinking more broadly about the system in which you're operating, the environment in which you're operating. And digital technologies are enabler for delivering better care, for delivering you know more effective, more efficient care. But the, the stakeholders within that environment are so important. And so one has to think about the workflow and the people uh, and how ultimately you are able to affect change through a group of users who are engaged and love it and are willing to buy it and put the time to to working with your solution because if you can't do that and you can't get win them over then no matter how interesting and exciting what you're developing might be you're going to struggle and on that note i would like to say thank you so much ben for coming on our podcast i really appreciate your time Thank you very much, Fiona. It was really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Also head to the show notes to follow us on social media for all the latest content in health tech. 